Well, welcome to the Sword of the Trial. The Sword and the Trial is a podcast of Founders Ministries, and we're delighted to have you here joining us today from Cape Coral, Florida. I'm Tom Askell. And I'm Graham Gunson. And we're delighted for you to participate and by watching this edition of the Sword and the Trial. And today we've got a special guest with us we're going to introduce in just a few minutes, and they have just completed a book that's going to be available from Founders Press. We'll tell you a little bit more about that as well. But first of all, uh, we got some things coming up. Our conference is on the horizon. We've got other things in the uh, offing. So, Graham, just yeah. kind of tell us what's happening. Yeah, lots going on here at Founders Ministries. You know, we assume that you're all coming to the conference, so we're not going to talk a lot about that. <laughs> but, However, there is a pre-conference, and so that's the day before the conference. That's on January 19th. The, the conference starts on the 20th. The pre-conference starts January 19th here at Grace Baptist Church. Um, registration is $25, so make sure you come and you're a part of that. It starts at 6 p.m. Also, during the conference, there's a ministry update dinner. Uh, that's January 20th, the first evening of the conference, also at 6 p.m. Um, it's just an opportunity to sit and hear from Tom and about the things that are going on here at the ministry. Um, also, just for fam members, um, January 4th, this is a Tuesday at 7 p.m., there will be a Table Talk with Tom. It'll be a live Q&A session. You guys can throw all your most difficult, all your cheesiest <laughs> questions at Tom. They do get screened, so yeah. go ahead. <laughs> That's fine. Yeah, I, and the conference registration, I think the discount ends at the end of this month. I think. It does, you, you yeah. Know, yeah, so. yeah, January 1st, prices increase. So if you are planning on coming to the conference, get your tickets before January 1st. And speaking of discounts, we do have a sale going on on all of our books, 25% off through the 20th of December. You have to use a code, all caps, give thanks, and you get 25% off everything. No in, space. Yeah, no space. Uh, everything in the uh, bookstore. And we have some new books that are available, uh, two on missions, ancient gospel, brave new world, which is by Edie Burns. You see that uh, copy that Graham's Beautiful holding there. Copy. Yeah, it's a wonderful book. And then missions by the book, how theology and missions walk together, which is written by Chad Vegas and Alex Kochman, who are our guests today. We have another one for the vindication of the truth, Baptist and symbolics volume one, which is on the first London Baptist confession of faith by James Renahan. So, uh, take a look at these. Again, you get more information about these at the founders.org website. Also, the Institute of Public Theology, Bodie Balkum is going to be teaching his cultural apologetics course in January before the Founders Conference. Go to instituteofpublictheology.org if you want more information about that. So, welcome, uh, Alex and Chad. We're delighted to have you with us. Uh, Chad's coming to us from Bakersfield, California, and Alex, you're in Pennsylvania. So, uh, you guys are across the country. Here we are in Southwest Florida. Praise God for technology that allows us to have you join us today for this podcast. So thanks a lot for giving your time to us today. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, glad to be here. Thanks, Tom. Yeah. Hey, we. Uh, I'm, I'm holding in my hands the only copy that exists. This is a proof copy of Missions by the Book, How Theology and Missions Walk Together. And uh, this is a great book. It's been commended by several people, uh, Ian Hamilton, Dustin Binge, uh, Carl Truman wrote a, a wonderful forward to the book. And uh, the book, I think, is poised to have a very long shelf life. It's I don't know another book like this book. So uh, can you guys just tell us the genesis of this book? I mean, how did it come about? Uh, Chad, you write a little bit about this in your um, uh, statements at the in the preface of the book when you're giving some of your uh, background. So tell us, Chad, start off with you. How did you guys decide to write this book and to write it together? Well, I think I think a couple things happened there. One. Um, I had been in a debate um, on on the issue of um, disciple making movements, a very popular um, 
and church planting movements. A couple of very popular methodologies that um, have arisen in the last couple of decades in the, in missiology. And the reason I had been engaged in the debate was because I took on um, some of what was happening with, in sending agencies or being pressed by various missionary sending agencies because of my role, my role in Radius International, where we train people to go to the field. And so as a result of that, I was engaged and, and John MacArthur um, saw the debate, was one of the people who saw the debate and had me, um, they had me come speak at um, a Grace to You or what is it called? Uh, Masters Academy International mm-hmm. um, Missions Conference, which is like a pre-conference to the Shepherds Conference. So I spoke there and some of their guys said, hey, would you teach a series um, for Masters slash Grace Community Church on missions? So I started to do that. I was also asked to teach at the same similar time at Founders on Missions. And as I was in the middle of doing that, I was pressed by some of the guys, hey, have you thought about writing a book on any of this? Um, And so I started thinking about it. And I had actually thought, I'm not sure that I'm a writer as much as I'm a preacher, um, but I've read this guy on on Founders writing these missionary, these blogs on missions named Alex Kochman, and I've met him, and I think he's a good writer. So I should talk to him and see if he wants to write a book with me. Um, you know, and, and he jumped right on board. Wonderful. So Alex which the moral us- of the story is that Chad needs to get to know more writers, but that's okay. <laughs> so Alex, tell us about your involvement in this and uh, what you're doing now. I mean, uh, Chad's pastoring and he serves with radius and just learned that he also writes, uh, it's not legal briefs. What did you just say, Chad, you write like legal pleadings legal on pleadings. like real property law or, or on, uh, you know, litigation issues over contracts that are violated. Yeah. Just so, for fun, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Avocation. So, uh, Alex, tell us about your work with ABWE and how you uh, jumped on board with this book, what, what your uh, input has been. Yeah. Thanks, gentlemen. So, I serve with ABWE, the Association of Baptists for World Evangelism here in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, as Director of Advancement and Communications. So working with churches and helping oversee our publication side and everything that you would see online from us, including our podcast. And before that, I served as our Director of Long-Term Mobilization. So coming out of a church ministry background, I had a heart for, we want to send our best. We want to train well. Um, And so we had learned over the years about what Radius is doing. Um, I had a relationship with founders and writing for founders as well, but knowing what Radius is up to and what we're up to as well, which is trying to train long-term qualified church planting missionaries. When Chad approached, immediately resonated with that uh, vision of wanting to see missionaries trained and sent out. And I had seen that same debate with the individual that he referenced. In fact, I've in, uh, interviewed this exact individual on on my pad, podcast as well, in addition to Chad. And so we're, we're constantly talking about those issues internally, and we wanted to take a fresh look at it and sort of see what would it look like if we did missions in a way that was directly informed by our theology, rather than starting with a strategy and then shoehorning our beliefs into it. Mm. And that's fundamental, and you guys make that very clear in the book, is that uh, what we believe that doctrine ought to drive practice, and we don't develop practices and then try to fit doctrine into it and say, okay, we're going to justify what we're doing by Bible verses. And so uh, you, you take a really rigorous approach to the idea of missiology, and, and you do it starting off by looking at the authority sufficiency of Scripture, and then you do a Trinitarian approach to it as well. So I tease that out a little bit for us, and, and if you don't mind, uh, touching on the implications that has for some of the problems that 
arise inevitably, but it, most recently uh, with DMM and uh, CPM in missiology? You know, I think it's important that we um, jump into that and preface it to some degree with, I think what we all know in the church world, which I see showing up in the in missiology as well, which is the notion that somehow ministry practice is neutral and exists in this world outside mm-hmm. of our doctrine, um, that there's no tie between our doctrine and our ministry practice. Um, so you can kind of hold these doctrines over here in one hand and then ministry practice in another hand, and the two don't need to relate. And I was seeing that um, in when I used to be in kind of the purpose-driven megachurch world, I saw that happening. And then I've, I've now seen that happening in missiology in a big way. And I realized that we need to address that. And so the reason we started with the sufficiency and authority of scripture was because as I, and I'm sure Alice can tell you this, as we interact with most of the sending agencies out there, um, the common denominator is not what do we believe and now therefore how does that influence our practice, but what works mm. or what do we hear amazing stories about? And then based on the amazing stories we hear, how do we reproduce that same practice in hopes of getting those same kind of results? And um, it's not dissimilar to what happened with like when Rick Warren wrote Purpose Driven Church or Purpose Driven Life, and then all the churches wanted to sort of latch onto that and see if they could get the same results as Saddleback Community Church. It's not dissimilar from that sort of impulse. Um, The reason we start there, frankly, Tom, with scripture is because that's our authority. That's where our confessions start. All the historic Protestant confessions start with the doctrine of scripture. And so we thought it's important to start there, um, both to say um, that scripture is foundational to how we practice ministry, and and also to say that even our confessions provide language for uh, what happens when you walk in another context. And I think I think one of the things that uh, sort of bounces around the missions world is, is, you know, a couple hundred years ago, missionaries went to these foreign peoples and tried to make them all into Westerners. Mm. They tried to make them dress Western and build Western looking church buildings and, uh, you know, take on Western forms of music or what have you. And so we shouldn't be doing any of that. And, and there are some legitimate concerns there, but interestingly, our confessions already address that. And so part of that was, hey, it's right in our doctrine. So for example, in the London Baptist Confession, um, chapter one, and this is also in the Westminster Confession, chapter one, but paragraph six, um, after it says that the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down or necessarily contained in the Holy Scriptures, or we know in the Westminster Confession, it says, uh, you know, by good and necessary consequence. But but notice what it says after that, um, when it says, nevertheless, we acknowledge the inward illumination of the Spirit of God to be necessary for the saving understanding of such things as are revealed in the Word, and that there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God and government of the church, common to human actions and societies, which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence, according to the general rules of the word, which are always to be observed. And so I point that out just to say, it's not like the Protestants didn't give us any language um, to begin working through these issues. They did Um, quite good confessional language that if we were just relying upon, I think we would have um, that, you know, as we would all say, this conf- these confessions being derived from Scripture and rightly representing what Scripture teaches, if we had been relying upon, we wouldn't have some of the mess we have in missiology. 
Mm. As far as God and the Holy Trinity, the reason we move there next is because the confession moves there next. Um, I think rightly, dealing with Scripture and now God. And and the last phrase, actually, in the London Baptist Confession, which is an improvement on the Westminster Confession, particularly in this place, says, which doctrine of the Trinity is the foundation of all our communion with God and comfortable dependence upon on him? So if the doctrine of, of the Trinity really is um, the foundation of all our communion with God and comfortable dependence on him, how, how do we... How do we not tease that out as to as to how that has something to do with our our missiological practice? Mm. Um, we don't just leave it on the side. It's not just a doctrine that exists out there in a book that none of us think about how that influences the way we see what we do. So that that just kind of plays into some of some of what we were doing. Yeah, and I can add to that a little bit. I was recently interviewing on our podcast, The Missions Podcast is the name of it, The Missions Podcast, so it's it's memorable. But the, the interview with uh, the individual that Chad debated on some of these topics, and I think the statement was made at some point, I've never heard a positive articulation of this traditional proclamational model of missions and evangelism. And so we're trying to answer that and say, let's positively articulate, not starting all the way downstream with the methodology, but let's start with the foundational biblical and theological assumptions that should inform any methodology. And to anyone that would kind of look at this project and say, well, there's a couple of Reformed Baptists, you know, articulating a, a narrow sort of rigid, you know, here they are, they're going to come and, and discern, you know, everything to death, right? And, and sort of be very narrow in their approach. We would simply respond, hey, that's why we start not only with Scripture, but then move into the Trinity. And the second chapter uh, is on the Father's role in redemption, specifically as the source of love for the world. And that was an intentional decision on our part to frame it in that way. We wanted to ground love as the root of missions. And we move out from there as well. But I think it's relevant too, because we've all heard reports, ABWE, we're, we're grateful to have uh, about a thousand missionaries serving with us, but there's a lot of other missions agencies and you hear good things, you hear bad things across the, miss the missions world. Uh, I've heard stories of, of missionaries being dismissed from the field for converting to Islam. And it's because we want to send our best. And yet oftentimes we don't, we send people that are ill-equipped and if we're going to send, and if we're going to go, we need to have that foundation in things like the Trinity. And I think, I think Tom, to answer part of what push into what Alex is saying there, it's important. The father is the one who sends. And so, you know, you get into chapter two and three of the confession, God's decree, you know, you, if you start to just follow the logic of how the Protestants, and when I say the Protestants, I don't just mean the Baptists, the Presbyterians, the Congregationalists, and even if you go over to the, the continent, um, the Reformed there, the Protestants said, um, here's a lot, the Father sends um, out of his love for us, he sends, and he sends the Son, and the Son has a mission, right? And we see that laid out in Luke. And so um, chapter three is really picking up on the mission of the Son, particularly with respect to um, Luke and Acts. And then if you look at chapter four on the mission of the Holy Spirit, his the Son comes to redeem us um, as sent by the Father in love for us, and the Holy Spirit um, comes to apply that work to us. Um, and that's what we see laid out really quite clearly in Luke and Acts. And frankly, um, that, that's what we see in, in passages like 2 Corinthians 13, 14, you know, the love of God um, and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And so we're just kind of 
saying, how does this work out in our missiology and what are the implications for our missiology from these things? Then we move into the doctor of the church and the way the apostles did missions. So chapter six of the book really is a positive presentation of how proclamational um, missions was done uh, well, because it's really just what were the apostles doing in the book of Acts? Mm. Yeah, that's good. And it seems like missions or missiology is very easily uh, an opportunity for error to come into the church. I mean, it seems like that uh, you can even trace it historically where pressure points have been there. I was thinking about um, Adoniram Judson and the uh, uh, letters back and forth between him and Luther Rice and others. People were not ridiculing him, but really concerned. You know, why don't you see any converts? You know, what are you doing wrong? And and he just come over here and spend a year with me, and you'll have a different tone. And resisted that pressure. Uh, same thing with William Carey. You know, they, th- these guys had opportunities to baptize folks long before they ever baptized their first converts, and they withstood some of those pressures. But why is it? Why why are the mission points beyond what we're normally associating with church life in our in our uh, immediate context why are those mission points seemingly prime for error to come in have you ever thought about that yeah i think it's part of the same problem that we see um you know chad you talked about it earlier those parallel problems uh, in the church here in the u.s and then in our missions abroad it's just it's a often becomes a numbers game you know the, the church growth uh mm wackiness that we've seen um, here in the U.S. It's just transferring that in, into missions. We, we want to see as many numbers, as as many people come in as we possibly mm-hmm. can. And I mean, that's a good desire. It's a good motivation. Yeah, yeah, but then that becomes the, the end-all, be-all. So uh, the disciple-making movement and uh, church planting movement that you referred to, Chad, early on, we probably need to define that for folks. So uh, if you guys would do that, maybe just give us like a two-sentence or three-sentence definition of each one of those, because both of you have recognized the error of those well-intended movements. Wait a second. (laughs) Isn't it a good thing to make disciples? Isn't it a good thing to plant churches? (laughs) Have churches planted, sure. (laughs) So give us a a definition of what you're talking about by CPM and DMM, and then why uh, missiology that's based upon Scripture that's rigorous theologically cannot allow those things to gain a foothold. Alex, go ahead. You jump in. I was going to say, Alex is the one who does all the interviews with church planning movement guys and DMM guys. I mean, I stepped into this the first time in part because, you know, to answer the question of the pressure points of missiology, when you're, it's it's hard to articulate doctrine clearly in your own language. Mm. So if I stand in front of a congregation of people in America and say, God is love, um, First of all, I have to define who God is because and what God is because I don't think the average American audience understands what I'm saying. And I'm speaking in English, mm-hmm. my own context, but they have an s- assumption about that. I have to define love because they think now love is some sort of just general affirmation of whatever I want to do or be. Yeah, and you have um, to define not, what is, not, is. Not, you know, it doesn't have an ethical content called the law of God, right? And now, based on what we saw with President Clinton in the 90s, I have to define what is, is, right? right? So all three of those words I've got to give definition to in English. So imagine you go to another people who don't have the same vocabulary you do, don't have the same language, don't have the same cultural background, and how easy it would be to reproduce your error over there if Mm. you don't don't really understand 
doctrine both so that you can be clear in English with your own people and their own language and culture so you can be clear with them. So it's a real pressure point for error. And I think DMM and CPM are sort of like, they're almost like end arounds. It's, mm. it's a way to make it happen without having to do all that hard work. Mm. Um, so church planting movements really get, it's really get their juice from David Garrison um, and what was happening, uh, you know, a couple, few decades ago, a couple decades ago uh, with the desire to see not only churches planted, but following second Timothy two, two um, the notion of Paul is writing to Timothy. So you have first generation, Paul, second generation, Timothy, to entrust these things to faithful men, third generation, the faithful men who will be able to teach others also fourth generation. And that became kind of a model by which they say, now, if you're going to really be a, be a faithful church planter, you have to plant a movement and a movement is four generations as defined by second Timothy two, two. It's essentially the argument they went off of DMM, comes along after that and says, and I'm giving you, I'm not giving you all the details, just the very br- briefing. DMM comes along with disciple-making movements and says, well, really, it's not about church planting. It's about making disciples. And so they have divorced the notion of church planting from disciple-making. Um, both of those, by the way, both those methodologies gain their steam, um, the DMM really coming from the Watsons. Um, they, they both gain their steam inside of the IMB. I mean, the IMB is the big, you know, sort of monster sending agency um, in the United States. And and really, most of this stuff gains its steam in the IMB and then goes out to all the other sending organizations. Yeah, and it, I would say it's in the water. It's not just limited to one organization. It's sort of in the water. And where you see it is anyone talking about movements. And you always have to ask what's meant by movements, because mm-hmm. I think there's something very good and biblical in that impulse to, you know, when we're discipling people and when we're recruiting elders and training nationals to be leaders, we want to set them up for success multi-generationally. We don't want them to be completely dependent on outside missionaries for all of their existence. So there's a biblical inference there. I think what happens is that we end up applying narrative texts, especially from the Gospels and parts of Acts, uh, but maybe not the right parts of Acts, but we, we apply some of these narrative passages as normative. And so you look at something like the sending out of the 70 in Jesus' ministry, and you see that there's this very um, sort of spirit-driven in the subjective sense uh, approach to ministry where, and we know historically and and in the context, it's because Jesus' disciples are being sent on kind of a short-term missions trip because Israel is rejecting her Messiahs and about to fall under judgment. And yet what happens is uh, the thinking is, all right, well, you should go. You should look for a person of peace, just like the disciples were told to. If that person doesn't receive you, then you're supposed to shake off your the dust from your feet and go to the next place, right? And so it's this sort of mentality of, of miming some of the things that we see in the book of Acts rather than taking as normative what we see throughout Scripture, which is there's public proclamation of the gospel. Sometimes it's in private or, or individual relational settings, and sometimes it is in a very public place, but there's a forth telling of the gospel, a call to faith and repentance. And instead, we're trusting in a lot of these other methods that are 
really designed to kind of slip into the existing social structures and then rely completely on those social structures to then multiply the number of disciples. And that's what we're sort of concerned with is, hey, we agree that the church and its forms need to be contextualized. There's a healthy form of contextualization. We don't want to just replicate uh, so-called Western church models everywhere, um, but we don't want to be so hyper-focused on contextualization that we deconstruct everything to the point where a few people gathered for a Bible study underneath of a tree, whether or not they're converted, is considered a church planted. When we see that start to happen, and granted, that's an extreme case, but sometimes this does happen in the reporting and the way that we think about those things. We want to come in with a corrective and say, let's def- excuse me, let's define the local church, let's define conversion and what salvation is, and then develop our methodology from there. I, I think that's uh, that's the genius of your book <clears throat> because it applies across the board, certainly in missiology, but it applies right here uh, in the United States where we are with our own churches, where people start with a, a wrong understanding of authority and what a church is, what a Christian is, what the gospel is, and how a person becomes a, a Christian. And we've said a long time around here that <clears throat> you know to, to live well in the world as a Christian, you need to find a healthy church, build your life around it. And yet still, there's just so many people that think it's me and Jesus, mm-hmm. and I can do what I want to do, and I'm a, I'm a follower of Jesus, and so the church is kind of uh, an add-on, and if you get you know can plug into a church, fine. And I'm, even people that have claimed to walk with Jesus a long time, they just don't get that. It's, it's, uh, it's not as common as it ought to be. It's not as automatic as it ought to be for those that take the Bible seriously. And somehow they just skip over those verses or they reinterpret them in a way that uh, subjectivizes their whole piety and their whole experience uh, with Christ. And consequently, once you lose that sense of authority, then you can do exactly what you just said, Alex. You can have a Bible Sunday under, under a tree and say, well, this is my church or you don't need the church. But you guys hammer that in this book. I mean, you have a whole chapter in which you address that so helpfully, which, again, is why this book is valuable not just for, certainly it is primarily valuable for missiology and thinking about the work of the gospel around the world, but it's valuable for pastors and serious Christians to think about what it means to follow Christ wherever you are. And I'm greatly appreciative of that. Yeah, Tom, I think one of the things that... um, there, there's, a, there's a number of ways that we could press into this, but I think one of the things I want to stress here is that Alex and I really hope to give missions back to the church. Mm-hmm. What's happened in, in contemporary missiology is that um, if you get a degree in missiology, I'm going to say this, it's going to sound insulting, but I'm just going to say it because we all know it's somewhat true. If someone has a degree in missiology, that's generally shorthand for I skipped all the hard classes in seminary. Um, <laughs> you know, I didn't bother with theology, with church history, with languages. I spent a lot of time on sociology and social movement theory and cultural anthropology. Um, and I thought about all of those things. Um, and so then when we start to deal, you know, linguistics or whatever it might be, when we start to deal with missions, missionaries come back from the field and they say, we're doing X, Y, and Z. Like I planted a thousand churches this year, mm-hmm. or which I've heard, literally heard a thousand churches this year. Um and they come back and they see these kind of things and pastors think it sounds fishy, but then they're like, well, I guess when, you know, we, cro- we cross some sort of international dateline or some sort of geographical boundary or some sort of linguistic barrier, suddenly the Holy Spirit just works differently than he works here and ministry works differently than it does here. And, and who am I to question? I don't know that language. I don't know that culture. 
I don't know missiology. Um, and I think, and if I question, I look like a jerk because the missionaries out there in a hard place suffering. And so should my missions committee or should our pastors really ask hard questions about what they're doing? Because we feel like we're the bad guys when we do that. And so we just wanted to say, Hey, wait a minute, let's just be really clear. Missions is not rocket science. It's not something different than what we're doing in our own language and culture here. It's taking the same ordinary means of grace and, and going, you know, preaching the gospel baptizing, serving the Lord's Supper, praying, raising people up in the church, appointing elders and deacons. It's doing the same thing we do here. It's just doing it in a different language and culture. And the same um, things apply. We have the same God. We have the same nature of man. We have the same nature of sin. We have the same gospel uh, of redemption, the same Christ, the same Holy Spirit, like the same word of God. And, and so we just need to understand that and realize we can take missions back in the church. We don't need these experts in cultural anthropology to tell us how this gets done. Um, it's just really, really clear. Now, we do need help with linguistics, or I'm not saying there's nothing to mine from cultural anthropologists or sociologists or whatever. I'm not saying there's nothing good there because we talk about the light of nature in our own confessions. I'm just saying that at the end of the day, this is not something that's hard because um, we don't understand it. It's hard because you suffer and you struggle and, and you face a lot of opposition and you have to learn new languages and you pour yourself, pour yourself out onto death uh, for a lifetime for the sake of reaching unreached peoples. That's why it's hard. But we can all understand that conceptually. and We don't have to sort of shy away from asking our missionaries hard questions. Uh, can we go back to... And I mean, absolutely. Amen. The, the, the Lord has given his church to send out missionaries. And so grateful for organizations like both of yours um, that assist the local congregations in doing that. But you you referenced hearing a missionary say that he had planted a thousand churches in a year, uh, assuming yeah. that he says that in good faith and he's sincere about that. I mean, how does somebody say that and believe that it's true? I mean, is it legitimate? Oh, I mean, definition of the church. Alex can address that. Go ahead, yeah. Alex. Yeah, I mean, it's it's partly this reductionistic definition of a church where we're looking at Matthew 18 out of context, right, where two or three are gathered, there I am among them. In the context, the two or three there are gathered for uh, church disciplinary reasons, right, because on the word of two or three witnesses, every testimony is to be established. We know that from principles of Old Testament law that are being brought into the New Testament to help decide cases of church discipline. But how that typically gets applied uh, in the American context is anytime you have a few believers together, you have a church. That's part of it. The other part of it is um, there is a temptation. And I think we all face it. Part of this is holding up the mirror and not just saying practitioners of a certain methodology out there are bad. It forces us to hold up the mirror to ourselves and say, boy, what are the areas where I'm guilty of chasing results, where I'm being mm -hmm. pragmatic because we're all tempted in those ways. And part of it is the temptation to be boasting in other people's fruit, something that the Apostle Paul refuses to do, right? He says, I won't boast outside of that circle, that sphere of influence that the Lord has given to me. And yet very oftentimes, if there's second, third, fourth generation things happening, there is a temptation to claim credit for it because there are interests involved. There's money to raise in missions. There's 
organizations to support. We want to strip all of that away. We really want to bring it back to the foundation of of Christ and the gospel and the church that he's building. And just to, to reiterate, we, we love the idea of churches continuing to grow uh, and grow in explosive ways if the Lord would will that. But what we've found, Chad and I, both through individuals that we've spoken to who've traveled abroad, who've looked into some of these things, is many of those movements can't be found. Uh, many of those churches can't be found. Uh, part of it is there are methodologies that mm-hmm. say uh, that, and and we would agree with this. We we think that the Bible is an effective tool, and it's great when it can do its own work. That the Word doesn't return void, and so starting evangelistic Bible studies with unbelievers is a fantastic thing to do. Uh, both of our organizations strongly believe in the role of chronological Bible storytelling over time to unpack the whole flow of redemptive history. But what happens? is evangelistic Bible studies get started with unbelievers. The missionary is told to take a back seat because you don't want to westernize those people. You don't want to exert undue influence on them. And so pick a national who may or may not be a believer yet, might even be a religious leader in a non-Christian context, like an imam in a community, in an Islamic community. And that person is going to be the facilitator of this Bible study so that they can reach their own conclusions about Scripture and the missionary isn't imposing on them. Now, again, because some of these methodologies are just sort of diluted and are sort of in the water, you have people that are practicing maybe one of these ideas, maybe not all of them, or maybe two or three of them, and you see it in various shades, but taken all the way to its logical extent, you have things being counted as churches that not only aren't churches because they lack the historic marks of a church, the preaching of the word, the right administration of the ordinances, and church membership or discipline, depending how you want to break those up. Not only does it lack those things, but actually lacks believers because people aren't being brought to a point of decisive conversion rather than being told, hey, there's a there's got to be a break between your old life and your new life where you turn from the old ways, you turn to Christ, right? You leave the kingdom of darkness, you're transferred into the kingdom of Christ, as Colossians 1 says. Instead, there's this idea that while you're used to obeying you know, this set of instructions for life, why don't you try obeying Jesus' set of instructions for life? And if I could add one thing really briefly, I think what's important, because we talked about the role of the local church, and if you were to ask the average person that you would encounter who says, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian, or maybe I'm religious, but I don't need to go to church, right? We all know that people. Some of us have been that people. Maybe some of the listeners might be in that position of not being at a church yet. But when we encounter those people, some of the reasons we tend to give for why it's biblical to go to church, unfortunately, tend to be instrumental reasons right? It will help Mm -hmm. you grow. It will help you get accountability in your walk. Who is all of that about? Mm -hmm. The individual. It's about you. And and we want to turn that on its head. We want to go to texts like Colossians 1, where it says that we have been transferred out of the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of the Son. And the point of that is simply to say this, that the church exists as a byproduct of redemption. It's not an accident. It's, It's the object of what Christ is doing in the world, and that has to be expressed in a certain way locally. That doesn't mean they need a building. That doesn't need they need mean they need microphones. That doesn't mean that that preaching can't be a little bit interactive sometimes and have some back and forth. Whereas in North America, we tend to sit and listen very silently. Other cultures might be a little bit more Socratic when proclamation happens. It simply means that what Christ is doing in the world is building a church, and we don't want to miss that. 
You know, one of the things this uh, seems to boil down to me as I'm listening to you guys talk is it's it's fundamental to just the Christian life and to Christian ministry here is you've got the responsibility that God's laid upon us, and we get that from the Word, and we, we must take the Word so seriously to understand our marching orders. And once we get that, then we must lay hold to what the Word tells us about how um, fruit comes and who is the one who gives the increase. It's the Lord. And so because we want the increase so badly, which is a right and good thing, we're tempted to short-circuit the means that have been entrusted to us uh, for what we think are good purposes or good results, good outcomes. And, man, you can fall off on either side of that horse. I'm remembering Spurgeon talking to students one time, and he said, you know, you may not uh, have fruit, but don't be satisfied to have no fruit. You should be pleading with God. You should be begging God uh, for fruit. And sometimes that desire for fruit can cause you, that right desire for fruit can cause you to compromise, cause you to do something, quote, that works, that looks like it's producing fruit, when in reality it's not fruit that lasts. It's something that's man-made. But on the other side, you can say, okay, well, God's the one that gives the increase, so, you know, I mean, we just do what we do, and uh, nobody gets converted, and nothing happens. Well, that's you know, that's God. So you know, we just are indifferent about it. Neither one of those is right. The the right perspective is the hardest. The right position is the hardest. It's where we plead with God. We long. We we're burdened to see things happen, but we refuse to budge an inch from what He's revealed in His Word that we are to do in the process. And I think you guys have threaded that needle very well in your book. You, I mean, obviously, both of you are involved in getting the gospel to the nations, and we want to be zealous for that, but we want to do it in the way that it's the gospel that's getting there and not something that we've kind of carved up ourselves and call the gospel. Amen. Amen. Yeah, well, guys, thank you so much for writing this book. And again, you can get the book uh, at the Founders website. You can order it. It's on discount right now. And uh, we will have a, a special uh, announcement whenever they will be shipping because they're not quite here yet. This is just a proof copy that I have. But they'll be here soon, and we'll get them out as soon as we can. And thank you for joining us today on the podcast. Before we sign off, let guys know how they can contact you. So how can they follow your ministry? How can they keep up with what you're doing uh, social media-wise and uh, websites and otherwise? So, Chad, tell us how people can can connect with you a little bit online. You know, I, I mean, I'm on Facebook, I guess. Um, no, you are. You don't have to guess. I see Vegas, you. But I, I, Radius International does have a website, so radiusinternational.org. Um, so there's a website there for that if they want to know more about That's that. R-A-D-I-U-S International, right? R-A-D-I-U-S International.org. Um, don't ask me what it means. I have no idea. I, I don't, you know, anyway. So, but there it is. We train people to plant churches and unreached people groups and or unreached language groups and uh, the long-term hard cross-cultural ministry we're talking about here. Um, so they can find out more about our ministry there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, my own church, Sovereign Grace, is bakersfieldchurch.org. They want to find out more about us, but I'm not sure why they would want to jump on my church website necessarily um, other than that. So, but I'm not a prolific uh, guy with all kinds of Twitter feeds and all this stuff like Alex. So we probably should just go over to him and <laughs> let him let you know okay. all about how to hear from but, him. But we ought to there say, is a, we do have uh, one of our church members is out at Radius right now mm-hmm. and doing training. The reports we're getting back are just outstanding. So uh, really appreciate uh, the work of that ministry. Alex, tell us how folks can connect with you, ABWE. 
Yeah, there no there there is um, a small band of us that want to see Chad join Twitter, um, but reducing Chad to 280 characters kind of defeats the purpose. Um, but uh, anyway, I digress. No, um, I'd encourage people to reach out to ABWE ABWE.org. Uh, we're here to serve churches. We have a family of about 400 sending churches that send missionaries through ABWE. Can go get trained through Radius and then go serve through ABWE. And there's a variety of of different uh, uh, types. Of, of methods that are used within ABWE, but it's it's all within that umbrella of let's biblically proclaim the gospel and plant healthy churches. We also host the Missions Podcast. You can go to missionspodcast.com. Uh, I host that uh, with my co-host Scott Dunford every week, and we talk about issues like this uh, pretty regularly, and we dive deep, and we talk to both sides, and we try to reach some uh, some common ground as well as some practical next steps forward. And then you can follow me on Twitter at AJ Kochman or alexkochman.com. All right. Thank you so much for joining us uh, today for this special podcast. We appreciate these two brothers, the work that they're doing. Uh, Pray for them as you think of them, as they are involved in helping to get the gospel to the hardest places on earth. And check out their book, Missions by the Book, How Theology and Missions Walk Together.